And even if things get worse, you know, you might actually get more people getting into rented homes because they're being pushed out of their own home. Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Stop financializing everything. What is true wealth? What's the right metric for success? Much of how we live presupposes that our incomes or spending is a good measuring stick. But can you really quantify success with a bank balance? Or should we include softer things like learning and love, generosity and gratitude, and happiness and well-being? Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Mindful Wealth Podcast, in which we're going to be talking about wealth and housing. And we have the honor today of having Greg Fuller with us, who is assistant professor at University of Groningen, which I'm going to not say in Dutch. (laughs) And also is the author of the book, The Political Economy of Housing Financialization. So just to, by way of starting us off, Greg, do you want to tell us a little bit about the journey that has led you to be with us today? What specifically do you do? Why do you do it? And what experiences gave you the perspective that you have? Well, I mean, one of the, the sort of uh, cliches that, that, that they say about getting a PhD is that basically whatever's happening in the world when you get your, your doctorate or when you're doing your postgraduate studies ends up being the thing you end up studying for the, the whole of your life. And so I was doing my master's during the housing crisis, and then it sort of blew up into the, the global financial crisis and the Eurozone crisis uh, as I was doing my PhD. And so I became a specialist on both housing finance and then also the Eurozone, which are two sort of not obviously connected things, but sometimes they, they, they can be. Uh, and basically, you know, when I was looking at what I wanted to do for my research, the question was, well, uh, you know, we have all these, these things we believe about financial markets and how they work. Many of those things that we believe are being kind of invalidated by what we're watching going on in the world right now. And so, you know, is there a better way to understand how finance intersects with our daily lives, interacts with uh, policymaking, and essentially shapes everything from, you know, an individual's decision in the shops all the way up to uh, international politics? You know, how does all of this uh, interact with financial markets. And, and at the time, one of the big words that was floating around was financialization. Uh, you know, and you had the financialization of, and it has so many definitions that the handbook of financialization that exists today has something like 45 different chapters, all dealing with different aspects of financialization. And, and so basically, you know, financialization was the thing. It was obviously what was happening in the world. And and two ways in which I really wanted to look at that were through housing and then also through how this all interacted with um, with the euro. Um, and, and so uh, as I got out, you know, I, my PhD, the, the first book written uh, out of my dissertation was about housing, finance and financialization. Then the second book, uh, The Political Economy of Housing Financialization, is obviously on that topic. And I sort of have half of my journal publications in the housing sphere and the other half in sort of this uh, macroeconomic imbalances uh, eurozone sphere. And that's so basically I ended up just focusing on the thing that was happening when I was studying. (laughs) So we talk about wealth on the podcast. And so what is, what's unique about how housing fits into the wealth landscape in the current moment? Well, I mean, the, it's, it's hard to talk about wealth 
in any meaningful sense without talking about housing, because for the vast, vast, vast majority of people in the world, uh, housing is going to be the most valuable asset they ever own if they, you know, if they rise to the point where they can own housing. But uh, yeah, so if you look at uh, the, the class of people who own property of any sort, housing is the biggest single chunk of that. And then if you look at how you can use existing wealth to leverage yourself into gaining more wealth, housing becomes even more essential. Because you know, once you're on the, the housing ladder, essentially, uh, if you have a certain amount of equity built up in housing, uh, you can use that to, you can borrow against it to invest in more housing. You can borrow invest against it to invest in things like, uh, you know, crypto and NFTs, although it seems like that was a very bad idea to begin with. And, and we're very glad to be seeing that, that go out the way. But basically, you know, housing is the biggest chunk of your wealth. And then once you have it, you can use it to generate more wealth. And, and so that is, you know, even if you look at sort of like these big, big books like Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century, you know, he can't escape the fact that housing is, especially for the middle class, that is where their wealth is. And so as a result, it becomes hugely politically significant as well, because when you start making housing policy, you are making policy that directly impacts the wealth of, of most voters or a good chunk of voters. Um, so that's why I would say it's always, you know, uh, housing is always near the center of that wealth discussion. Is there anything unique in the present moment about it? What do we mean by the present moment? Like the yeah, current the, year, the current decade? The, let's say, say the, the current election cycle. Is there anything unique about it like right now? Well, Post-COVID, you know, like like not yeah. to make it too U.S. centric, right? Like like post-COVID, like, you know, we're in a, we've gone through an iteration of something. And so, yeah. Sure. I think, well, I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways to answer that. I mean, one of them is, is sort of more on the, the sociological, anthropological side of as we move away from the, from the workplace uh, and, and the home becomes a much more of a hybrid workplace and then side of traditional reproduction, like, you know, sort of labor reproduction, that kind of thing, where basically the home is, is now part of, you know, your, your personal life and your professional life at the same time. I think that's an important shift. But I think that from a sort of where my expertise lies is in political economy and economics. And there, the, the crucial thing right now is that, you know, we're in an inflationary environment that's unlike anything that we've seen in, in my lifetime. I mean, I'm, I'm nearly 40. Um, and, and these sort of are the, the inflation rates that would have prevailed in the decade uh, or higher than in the decade before I was born. And in the American context, inflation has a direct effect with, with uh, mortgages in particular, because you get the 30-year fixed mortgages. And so one of the very few groups of people who actually directly win from high inflation in the United States are people with large fixed rate mortgages that they earned, that they took out over the last few years. So you have that one weird dynamic. But I think the dynamic that matters for more people is that you know in an inflationary environment, the central bank is going to come under a lot of pressure to raise interest rates. That's exactly what they're doing. And as they raise interest rates, that effectively makes mortgage lending more expensive. So if you're going to borrow, you're going to buy a house, it's going to get more expensive to do that. And it's, it's going to push housing prices down. So, I mean, we've been looking at, uh, you know, quite some time of pretty consistent housing price increases. And as interest rates rise, 
especially going, you know, if we're talking about the United States going into the midterms this year, going into the 2024 presidential election, you know, by 2024, you could be looking at, at housing price declines over the, the past few years, which if you go back to what we were talking about before, you know, if your house is the biggest store of your wealth and it's losing value at the same time as you have an inflationary environment, which causes your income and your sort of liquid wealth to lose value, that's obviously a, a potentially very toxic uh, political environment to be campaigning in, especially if you're an incumbent. Right. Mm -hmm. But just to, um, you know, before I, I ask the next question that I, I had on the, you know, on the agenda, does, I mean, is that not kind of more supportive of equality? Because I know, like, let's say, you know, in the Canadian context, we had this like incredible upward price spiral through uh, the money printing of COVID and very low interest rates. So like our thing really ballooned. Like, I, I think that happened everywhere, but in Canada, it was like, you know, especially bad. And so now as we're looking down the barrel of like a, what they call a correction, even though interest rates are higher, it means that maybe people will have access to property in a way that they wouldn't before. So like, it kind of sucks for the people who already own something and see that value decrease a little bit, but like, maybe it's democratizing the first step on the property ladder. I mean, am I wrong about that? If you held access to finance even and said, all right, access to mortgages is not going to change and we're going to cause prices to come down, then yes, I think you'd be right. You'd, you'd be basically taking people who were not able to buy into to housing and giving them more access. But in practice, what's going to happen is that, yeah, housing prices are going to fall, which could theoretically invite some people into the market. But those same people are going to be facing stiffer underwriting restrictions when they're looking at mortgages because mortgage lending tends to get tighter during recessionary periods. Mm -hmm. And so they wouldn't be the ideal borrowers for the mortgage lenders themselves. And what you what you sometimes see in these situations, rather than a more egalitarian spreading of the housing wealth is that the kinds of borrowers who can sustain larger amounts of debt because they have very strong reputations and lots and lots and lots of capital, they become the preferred borrowers. And you might actually act, end up seeing consolidation of the mm -hmm. housing stock within some institutional investors. And especially when we look at, at rented homes, mm -hmm. that is absolutely what we are seeing, is that a lot of housing stock is now being bought up by big institutional investors who can carry the debt necessary to buy the property. And this has sort of become the new way of generating income out of housing. Under the old system with mortgage-backed securities, you would take the mortgages that people uh, take out, you would repackage them and essentially sell the, the, the payments that people make on their mortgages to end investors as income. And what we're seeing now with things like real estate investment trusts and real estate operating companies is that instead of doing the whole mortgage business, they're just saying, we'll sell shares to the public and you know, we'll take all these renters, we'll collect the rents, and then we'll distribute the rents out to our shareholders. Uh, and that's proving to be very lucrative for the institutional investors. Uh, it's proving to be very lucrative for the, the end investors, so the people who own the shares in these firms. And it does tend to increase the availability of certain kinds of rented residential property. And, but not all, but, but 
only certain types, right? If you mm -hmm. if you are a person who is looking to rent in a relatively urban area and you're highly educated and you want to go work in an urban center, if you're talking about the United States and sort of one of the big coastal cities, or even some of the fast growing cities along the Sun Belt, you're in great shape. If you need affordable housing, or if you need lower end housing, or if you need housing in a more blighted economic area, that sort of transition isn't going to help you gain access to housing at all. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. Like, uh, you know, you don't know our, our backstory here, but like I work basically in low income housing in Montreal and we're like at the very forefront of that. The REITs discovered Canada 10 years ago and like we're really going through that transition right now, which is one of the reasons why I was so interested to have this conversation. Let's pin this and leave it for a little bit later. Sure, sure. I want to just back the truck up historically a little bit. And, you know, we operate in today's world as if things were always so. And I wonder if you can just take us back a little bit and explain to us the history. Like, how is it that housing became to be the store of middle-class wealth? When did that happen? And why is it so generative of inequality? I mean, first of all, I mean, I, I think it's, it's one of those outstanding points that we don't make enough in academia or in the practical space, just our, presency, our presence bias, like the fact that we think not only that things have always been the way that they are now, but that they will continue to be the way that they are now. Uh, so so it's, 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 a, it's a very well taken point. You know, I, I think the historical evolution differs depending on the kinds of countries you're talking about, especially if you go back to sort of the pre-2000s period, you know, before you get into the area era when globalization became the term it became, before you get into the early 1990s when you have capital flow liberalization, where it's much easier to move money across borders. Back when you had national housing systems that were more cut off from one another, you ended up with very, very different experiences. So, so you know, you, you, you take, for example, you know, Germany, Germany has, has, has had a long history of things like housing provided by uh, employers. So if you were working for Deutsche Bahn, the railway, you would often have housing provided by Deutsche Bahn. Now that housing 30 years later is now owned by Venovia, which is mostly owned by hedge funds and is basically, you know, just like a rental company anywhere else in the world. But if you go back 40 years, you know, it wasn't that. You didn't have these big financial entanglements that sort of transferred housing effects from one market to another. So I guess thinking more about the United States or North American context, you know, the U.S. was, was a relatively early adopter of innovative financial practices to make mortgages available. And so if you think about using the home and seeing the home as a financial asset, that has a longer history in the United States than in a lot of other countries, especially when you tie in things like the mortgage interest deduction that exists uh, in the United States and where I live in the Netherlands, but in very other few places at this point. But I guess the, the traditional sort of canned story, if you were to talk to sort of like, if you were to give kind of the, the classical story of financialization, is that if you go back further in time, the home was a physical thing 
was a place where you lived. It was, if you thought about it in weird econ terms, as the place of labor reproduction, as in is where you would make more future workers. Uh, you know, but but you know, aside from that sort of one weird economizing of a thing, it was a physical place. It was a place that you thought of in terms of you know good feelings. This is where you spend holidays. This is where you see your families. These days, owning a home is much more of a, a, a financial transaction. It's an investment. Uh, you know, how you, how you gain access to a home, how you then manage the home you, how you have, how you turn the home you have into five more homes, you know, that has become one of the cornerstones of personal wealth management. Uh, and so I think that that transition from just being the home to being a financial asset subject to speculation and, and, and central to your you know, ability to retire and things like that, that is the, the sort of the broad spectrum transformation we've seen over, over decades. But I would say that in the United States, for example, that transition goes back much further, whereas in a lot of European countries, we're only starting to see this transition now. You know, there are still countries in Europe major advanced economies, Italy, you know, where most housing is still passed down through inheritance. You know, it's not something that you would speculate on in financial markets and use as a financial asset to like extract equity from to buy other housing. That doesn't exist everywhere. But sort of the direction of travel is definitely from sort of the house to the financialized asset. Mm-hmm. And quick, why quick. is that generative of inequality? There's a lot of reasons, but I mean, the, the biggest, single biggest one is that there's an incumbency effect. Uh, you have to have the home in the first place in order to, in order to gain the benefits of, of being able to use the home as a financial asset. So, you know, if you, the earlier in time you bought a home, the higher your income was relative to the price of the home. Simply because if we look across the developed world over the last 50, 60 years, housing prices have increased far faster than incomes have. So the further back in time you go, essentially, the cheaper it was to buy the home. But then the further you advance in time, the more owning a home becomes an advantage over people who didn't own a home. So to give you a, a personal example, and it's, and it's embarrassing, but, uh, you know, the, the, the only way I was able to own this home that I live in in the Netherlands was for a, uh, for a period of time, there was a law in the Netherlands that allowed parents to extract $50,000 or euros, I guess it was euros in this case, 50,000 euros of equity from their own homes and lend it to their children so that their children could buy homes and this would be a tax-free gift. Now, obviously, as a policy, that is a complete giveaway to relatively wealthy children of relatively wealthy parents who have homes with 50,000 in equity that they can withdraw. If you weren't on the housing market, you know, if you didn't have that kind of equity built up or you didn't get onto the housing market ladder until a few years ago, you couldn't take advantage of that. But the longer you owned a home, the more you had the chance, the more you could pass something like that onto your kids. And then, you know, now I have a home when a lot of my peers don't. The Netherlands, to its credit, did abolish this law last year, but I did get in there and take advantage of it before it was gone. That's uh, good for you, for sure. I want to dig into some th- this idea of financialization a little bit, because it seems to me, and, and it, 
you just threw out the Bitcoin and the and that things a second ago. I said, thank goodness that we're past that, right? It, it seems to me like we're going through a, a period of financialization with these things. In other words, the the institutions, just as they've gotten very involved in real estate, the institutions are getting more and more involved in crypto. And it's it is the institutions that are getting involved that sort of keeps it afloat. You know, when prices should come down in Bitcoin, when Chase Manhattan Bank says, hey, we're going to start supporting this and build apps for it and things, you get a lot more inflated pricing. Isn't the same thing going to be true in housing? I mean, institutions have largely, you know, they're they're the players in buying rental real estate in the United States, at least. Um, and the more that they're playing against each other with huge, huge sums of capital, they don't rely on debt as much, but they they hold prices much higher than they should be, making it difficult for all of us, right, to get in. But doesn't that usually come with, you know, what Terry was referring to a moment ago with some kind of a crash or some kind of price correction when they go, you know what, this was stupid. We shouldn't be pushing prices up this high. Well, there's a, there's a concept that, that's come up a lot in, in economics over the last sort of 15, 20 years called the safe assets shortage conundrum. Hmm. And it's this idea that, that there's a lot of people looking to save and there aren't great alternatives for them to save, earn a decent return and not have that return subject to huge amounts of risk. And so finding ways of integrating housing into mainstream financial markets has been sort of a, a major goal for many years because there are ways to make relatively risk-free returns on housing. Housing, unlike an NFTs or Bitcoin, has an intrinsic, you know, perp, you know, you can't live in an NFT, but you can ultimately live in a house. So, so, so there's there's a there's a certain uh, a floor on on the asset value. So I, I think that that what we've seen over the last, especially in the the sort of loose money 21st century is we've seen financial markets groping around looking for what kinds of assets can we pull into mainstream markets to turn into uh, income generating products that we can sell on to this glut of savings and, and, and investors that are out there. I think that as interest rates rise and, and you know what we're seeing right now is already the start of a correction and we are seeing corrections in some of the more esoteric weird stuff because yep. when you give people essentially free access to money some people are going to invest in, in odd stuff and i would say that you know nfts were kind of at the the pretty far edge of the weird stuff there there are definitely some applications of crypto and blockchain that are very useful and i'm not going to slug off all of the cryptocurrencies but in general these were pretty fringe products allowed by a long-term low interest rate environment and a desperation for things that were going to earn a return. Housing, on the other hand, the thing that they're doing there is just finding new ways of structuring very reliable payment streams that already exist. You know, rentals, even in downturns, like we're looking at right now, you know, places, big residential properties, major MFR, so multifamily residential properties, you know, they're looking at near full occupancy. 
And even if things get worse, you know, you might actually get more people getting into rented homes because they're being pushed out of their own homes. And so the counter cyclical protection that you get from buying a share of, a, of an REIT that's basically just passing rents on to you, that is a great new way of generating an income bearing product out of housing that just didn't exist 20, 30 years ago. And so, yeah, I, I think that the low interest rates and sort of this need for, for financial products and savings options has fed into a lot of things and some of them are silly, but the housing stuff, obviously some of it got out of control when you start looking at the subprime teasers and the things that were going on in 2005, 2006, 2007, but there are also more sustainable ways to extract wealth and income, especially income here from housing. And, and I think we are seeing some successful um, attempts to do that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mindful Wealth Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode with Greg Fuller, please tune in in two weeks' time where we unpack further questions on this topic having to do with debt. If you found this conversation interesting, don't hesitate to drop us a review, share, or invite your friends to have a listen.